Okay, let's go to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. I'm going to start reading the first uh, five verses. Today we're going to use verse number five uh, for our, our study today. Psalm 24, 1 through 5. The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's our focus today. So let's ask the Lord's help as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done for us. Uh, This verse will remind us of that. And we need to know it, so help us with our understanding. Help us with our attention, even today, Lord, to set it upon you and to set it there and keep it there as we study what great things you have done for us. Lord, this is a a wonderful psalm for us to learn, and I pray that it's making impact in our hearts. For this is not just an exercise to fill the sermon time, but to fill our lives. May it change us, Lord, for it's your word. May it do its work. May we be different, because we've come to know this text, too. And as you work in us so faithfully, Lord, and thank you for that, we are mindful of the fact that your goal is to make us like Christ. And according to your word, you will not fail in that either. So I pray that we're submissive to your loving, careful, yet intentionally working hand today. As you work in our lives, help us to understand, Lord, that we might respond appropriately in our worship and in our actions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we look at verse number 5 here, He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. That's a great, great phrase. But it is based on the previous verses. And it comes from the initial question, Who is this King of Glory? All these verses go together. And they're helping us to understand who this King of Glory is. Now, as we meet here, as we do week after week, We come to praise the Lord. That's one of the things, especially in the forefront. But we do not come ignorantly of what he has done for us. We know, don't we? We know. Our worship is a response to what he has done. Our worship is a response to who he is. It's a response. We often quote the verse, We love Because he first loved us, right? So our love is a response, isn't it? To his initial love for us. What do we have that didn't come from him? Nothing. 
Now, some people may say, well, I, I managed to, to work pretty good hours to earn some money to go out and buy this and to buy that and such like that. And, and maybe after a while you start thinking that way and, and believe that somehow you've invested an awful lot in your own things. But when we really go back to it, where did we even get the ability to live and to move and to have our being? From God. He deserves the credit. This verse certainly tells us that much as we're reading through it. Everything comes from Him. So even down to the very basics of our understanding, there's a fact that God is the initiator and we are the responders. God is the initiator. We are responders. Yet we live in an ignorant world, don't we? A world that does not know the Lord who made them. It does not know that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. That might surprise some people to hear that. They're ignorant. Hold your place here for a minute and go over to Isaiah chapter 1. It's not that far from where you are if you start heading further deeper into your Bibles, just a few books actually. Isaiah chapter number 1. This is kind of an interesting verse, these handful of verses from 2 through 4. Anyway, they are so strikingly similar to the world we live in now. The ignorance of our world. It says this in verse number 2. Back in the days of Isaiah, where Israel should have known their Lord. (laughs) After all, how much Old Testament history has gone through already? Go back to Abraham, you go back to uh, Moses, you go wandering through the wilderness. Did God ever present himself to them there? How many times? Every single day is the reality because they had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They watched him divide the sea. They watched him give manna. They, they, they knew who he was. You go into the days of Joshua, 30 years of victory as they conquered the land that God led them into. Exciting days. You go into the book of Judges and you get depressed because you read of failure after failure after failure on their part to trust him. And yet we still go into the books of Samuel and there's David and you have other individuals rising up like that. And you read Isaiah and that's some hundreds of years or so later and you wonder... What happened to these people? That they don't know the Lord. That's what his letter begins with. And it says in verse number 2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. God is actually calling to the heavens and the earth to bear witness to this fact. What is the fact? The Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. You see, even an ox knows its owner. A donkey knows where its manger is at. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. That's quite an indictment against a group of people that God has had such uh, a dealing in their lives in every way. And it's recorded in history. And they don't know Him. They don't know Him. Say, well, they're ignorant. You know, to some degree, when we talk about ignorant people, we want to apply a little sympathy there, don't we? Oh, they just don't know. We we, we want to be 
you know, kind of encouraging, you know, and try to say, well, maybe they just don't quite understand, you know. Um, after all, once we were ignorant of the Lord ourselves, weren't we? At some time, we didn't know who he was, so maybe we'll give them just a little bit, a little bit of sympathy. But here's the problem in this passage. There was a word that kind of stood out as we started it. The word revolt is in the text. But here's the other part. They are ignorant on purpose. Now that's an entirely different thing. To be ignorant on purpose. And yet that's exactly what it says in the next verse, and we're going to see that. But here's what I, I, I find so strikingly similar to the days we live in. We live in a country based on a Christian principle that purposely is ignorant of God now. Purposely ignorant of God. They choose to be so. We have the history, don't we? We have all these years of, of God's word declared in the pulpits of our land. And yet our country is purposely ignorant of the Lord. So you see, to acknowledge him is to be accountable to him. Now you know the problem? They don't want to be accountable. They don't want to be accountable. Now this is what Isaiah describes this ignorance as he goes into verse 4. Alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. What a description. Sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity. What a response. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised him. They have turned away from him. Now, as we go into Psalm 24 here in this passage, there are three views we can start with, with this question, who is this king of glory? There's a first view we can have, oh, it's just the words of an ignorant person. They just don't know. They don't know who this king of glory is. So they're asking the question, who is this king of glory? They never heard of him. Now, there's potential. There's people like that. They have no clue. A second view we might have are those that are arrogant in their ignorance. And they say, who is this king of glory? And their desire is not to know him. Their desire is to somehow discredit him. Because, again, if he is the king of glory... Are we not all accountable to him? And so they mocked the very title. They believed that maybe in their, their sarcastic way or in their, their scornful way, they could dismiss him by saying, who is this king of glory? Acting like they don't know, but they've done it on purpose. There's that view. Or it could be this third view. Maybe it's said by grateful people. Say, huh? Grateful people who can't get enough of the King of Glory. And they say, tell me more. Who is this King of Glory? Give me more information that I might praise Him all the more. Of those three, which do you want to be? Would you prefer the third one that I just described? Those who know Him, 
but say, I want to know more. I certainly hope that we're not anywhere near the first two of these. Certainly, if there's the first one is true, then the pastor's not been doing a very good job. If you don't know who the king of glory is by now. But if you're standing there in opposition to him, or sitting here this morning, your heart is hardened, you have graced yourself, you've developed this telesis, so you could, you know, avoid what you're about to hear, because you want to go on living the way you are. Still, the message is, this is the king of glory. And we must know him. So I'm very happy to think that we are in the place where we're grateful that we get to the chance to know him more. As we have begun this study, even this sermon this morning, I said we've met here to praise the Lord. We've met here to praise the Lord. And we do not come ignorantly of what he has done. We do not come here. Our worship is a response to him. It's a response to him. So, we're using this great psalm to tell us who is this King of Glory. I think of it as an instructive psalm. In that sense, it does ask the question, who is the King of Glory? But it also answers it, doesn't it? It gives us the information that we might understand who this one is. And it's our duty, I believe this, to seek out that answer. And you know what? It is so obvious when you read this, who is this king of glory? It is so obvious in the text. How how could we miss it? Maybe it's like when you open the refrigerator door and you're looking for something. It might be right under your nose, but you can't see it. You ever been there before? Drives me crazy. I hope that's not how we're going to approach this text. It is so obvious in here, who is this king of glory? We've been working our way through it. And what we have discovered is that he is the king, but we say he is our king. And if he is king, then he is great. And if he is great, then what he has done is great. And so we see the greatness of our Lord before us. The greatness in his ownership and creation of the world, the first two verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We, we started there. And it's such a remarkable thing. We're not going to rehash all that again. But a remarkable thing that he can build everything upon water. <laughs> Just the, the concept alone. It's not something one would do or could do. Except for God. But a fascinating section. If you want to catch up on that, that was a couple weeks ago. It's on the uh, website. You could listen to that message. But he's great in his ownership and creation of the world. He's great in his work. His work particularly in verse 3 and 4, where we desire to enter into his presence, but it's impossible for a sinful man to do so. It's impossible. We do not qualify because the list said you have to have clean hands. Well, we don't. It says also that in verse number 4, we we have to have a pure heart. We don't. It says you have to have a soul or a soul that's not lifted up to falsehood. And we studied that. We don't. 
we also have to be one who has not sworn deceitfully, and we haven't met that qualification either. We were 0 for 4 last week. When it came to man's attempt to somehow measure up to the glory of God, we can't do it. We can't. But we didn't leave the message there, did we? For in the very fact that Jesus could do this, and he was the one with the clean hands and the pure heart who never lifted his soul to falsehood, and as it says, he never sworn deceitfully. We can mark that clearly, but the reality that adds to this is something fascinating. That same Savior who perfectly qualifies in all these ways, came and died for our sins too. And having died for our sins, He cleansed us, He raised us up, even seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians tells us that. Matter of fact, Romans says in verse or chapter 5, we having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is something great. For the question was, who can ascend and who can stand there? And Romans answers that. We can stand before a holy God because we've been justified by faith, having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace by which we stand, it says. Don't you like those words? We stand in grace. But he doesn't stop there. Paul just can't stop anytime. And he goes on and he says, And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We can enter, we can stand, and we can praise him because of Jesus Christ. What a difference he's made. That's his work. Isn't it great? Yeah. That's the greatness of his work. We looked at that last week. Today we're going to look at one more aspect of that. The greatness of his grace. We're going to take it and look a little closer at what he has done. And just use that label grace here. And I like to think of grace as this. People have had all kinds of definitions and expressions and and pictures that they present as to what is grace. And I like to think of it sometimes this way. That somehow we are caught up in a grand parade. Let me explain it to you. For many years I've been a student of theology. That's not too exciting for some people. I realize that. Just like we were talking this morning about sociology. And if you're one of those who study that, I don't know why you do. Alright? It's like, uh, that's just not the topic for me. And when I say theology, that might not be the topic for you. I worked on a master's degree in theology. I worked on a doctor's degree in theology. I've had a lot of that over the years. Theology, where we sit in a classroom, and they, they show us intricate and, and endless outlines of every little tidbit of theology as it's worked out through and and toward, and, and to this point where we start to gloss over in our eyes, our brains start to melt a little bit, and we say, what is this? It, it, it's an incredible, I, I've written papers that will bore you to tears in these classes. 
They bored me to tears just trying to write them. Now, maybe that's true of all studies. Maybe the thing that you've had a chance to study, you, you've become so clinical in the study that somehow the, the uh, excitement of learning is lost somewhere back in the first week of the semester. And then you've got all that information coming at you, and you're trying to process. I've been there, you've been there, I know. The reality, though, of grace, I've studied it theologically through a lot of different, you know, works and such like that. We speak of the grace of God that brings us salvation. And we break it down into all these little pieces, and the reality is that the topic goes far further than we can see. Far deeper than we can dig. It's an intensely, incredible topic. Some people say, well, that's kind of impressive. You learned theology. The reality is it's kind of like being thrown out into the ocean and you've got to find your way to swim back to a shore. It's that big. It feels that you get to the shore and you're very happy you survived it. Grace is so huge. Where do we even begin? Well, you know what's nice? God makes it very simple when he explains grace to us in his word. The picture we have before us is certainly one of those. Now, this is the way I'm going to work with you this morning. We tend to find a place of reference when we talk about grace. We are very happy to point a pointer at the cross, aren't we? When we talk about grace, that's the greatest display at all, of all, of what grace looks like. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, imagine this, or if you are the one who likes to keep notes or doodle as you go, you could do it all, whichever one you want, but imagine a timeline in front of you, all right? You remember a timeline, don't you? I'm making it simple, all right? It's just a solid horizontal line. Usually on this end we have an arrow pointing that way, and on this end we have an arrow pointing that way. Timeline. Alright? If you imagine that timeline, you put a little dot anywhere you want toward the middle perhaps, or any point you want to make a reference to it. You put a dot. A dot to reference the cross. A point in time. When Jesus Christ died then, of course, rose again. So maybe you want to, instead of a dot, you might put a vertical line there and a little cross across the top of it, just to remind you what that point of reference is. Now, on the, on the one side, and, and probably to your left side, of this grand arrow you have here, you have that arrow there, and you could write above it, Eternity Past. Right? That's a big concept. <laughs> But that's what the arrow's for. Eternity just goes on and on, and you don't have enough paper to keep writing it. So you just put eternity past. And of course, on the other side of your arrow, you put eternity future. All right? So you got this great big picture. And somewhere around the year A.D. 33, and I'm simple with numbers, so that's what I like. I picked A.D. 33. Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried, and rose again. That's where we anchor our understanding of grace. It's a gift of God, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. 
That's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. We can't boast. But it's what God has done. We, we mark that as the point. Definitely. The place where we find our Savior dying on our behalf due to our sins. The actual atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ died. Yet, even though we point it there and say that's the thing, the story of grace is a living one. And what this is, is not just a point on some chart. And it's not like a, a document you hang on your wall that yellows or fades in years. We're talking about the story of God's plan of giving grace to us. You want to see how big it is? Let's do it this way. Let's go to the first arrow in eternity past. Let's go back as far as we could think with eternity past. And we find a very curious verse, a very fascinating verse, in Revelation 13, verse 8. Now, there's some variety in translations on that verse because the Greek text lends itself to that. But most of the scholars lean the way it was translated in your King James Version, which says this. It speaks of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of of the world. Oh, I thought we put a point there when he was slain. We put a point right there in the middle. You see that dot still? At least in your imagination it's there, right? But scripture says, as far as God is concerned, Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Try to fathom that a little bit. Here's the picture. You ready? God could stand all the way here in eternity past Look into the future and speak in the past tense. Why? Because he knows exactly what's going to happen. And he can say it so authoritatively that it's not going to change. No one's going to alter his plans. If he says that will be done, he can say it in the past tense. Why? Because it will be done. And from his perspective, all the way back there, he looked at a cross and knew his son would die. So even before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain in God's plan. Fascinating, huh? That's not it, though. This is the way Peter wrote it. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. He speaks of the fact that we're saved with precious blood. Not as a lamb unblemished and spotless. Well, I mean, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Who was? Jesus. In reference to what? His sacrifice. He's a lamb that's been slain. Precious blood given. But, for your sake, he appeared in this last time. You see, if Jesus never came, we wouldn't have known what God's plan was. <laughs> he had to come. We know that. Physically, he had to appear on this earth, right? He had to die for us physically, right? All those things were necessary. If that had never happened, how would we have known it? So he did come. But the plan was from eternity past. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Well, in keeping with this, this is what Paul had to say in Ephesians chapter 1. This is where it starts to pop some circuits, I know. But he says this in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us. That's now all of a sudden we're personal here, aren't we? He chose us in him... Before 
the foundation of the world. Do you grasp what he's saying? All the way back here in God's plan, it was, yes, his son would come. Yes, his son would die. That's a picture of grace. But he also included the recipients of it. You and me. He put us in the picture, way back there. We weren't even here to influence him. He didn't see how smart we were. He didn't see how wonderfully attractive we were. How did he manage to pick us? It's by grace that he chose you and me. He chose us. That's incredible. Alright? You got this picture of grace developing right now? Here's what I want you to understand. The program of God's grace was well in place prior to even the creation of this world. Grace is not an afterthought. Grace was planned. God is the initiator of grace. He is not a responder to the sin of man. Like, man sinned. Oops! Now what do I do? That was never in God's vocabulary. He had already planned. Already knew. It's a big topic. Alright, so. What do you see there? You can stretch your mind back as far as you possibly can without hurting yourself. But think it all the way back there in reference to grace and see how great it is. God's grace is great. That's just the past. Let's talk about the future. Let's go to the other side of your timeline here and and stretch as far as we can in the other direction. How long does the application of grace last? Tylenol is good for about three or four hours. Some of you know that too well. We think of grace as much more effective than Tylenol. It's got, a, it's got longevity to it, right? It's good for at least a week, isn't it? Want to start thinking big? How long does grace last? You like the word eternal? I like the word eternal. I don't understand eternal. But I like the word. What I read in scripture is that word eternal is stuck so many times on things that God has done for us. It means perpetual. It means unending. It means forever. And when we read that if we believe in him, we have eternal life, that's forever. How many times have you read that in Scripture? Oh, you even know John 3.16. He who believes in Him has everlasting life. How long is that? Forever. There's that term attached to it. Now, here's a couple of great verses pertaining to grace particularly. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself And God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Now, if our comfort is eternal, and our hope is good, and it's applied by grace, and if it's going to last forever, that means grace must do it too. Because if grace fades away, what good is the hope? 
but good is a comfort. It says also in Romans uh, 5.21, I like this verse. So that as sin reigned in death, which we knew too well, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Now using the picture of grace reigning eternally. Reigning eternally. If you're reigning eternally, who's taking your place? No one. If you're reigning temporarily, that means somebody's coming to take your seat, right? He mentions grace as reigning through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, stretch your mind as far as you possibly can into the future, and grace is still in effect. Alright? Still in effect. It does not fade. It does not fail. It does not falter. Grace is that way. It's a permanent operation of God. That's a picture of grace. Now, it's a great thing to see in eternity past. It's a great thing to see in eternity future. I think it's still pretty good in the present day, too. Are we living in the days of grace? We call this the age of grace. Why? Because we are recipients of that grace today, aren't we? It's not reserved just for the future, and it's not talked about like just a thing of history. But it's a reality of the Christian life every single day. For by grace you are, Scripture says. For by grace you are. That's our existence. So the greatness of our Lord. Now, I took you on a way big journey just to bring you back to Psalm 24. Alright? Because he talks about this great work of grace. What's he say? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. When I saw those two words here, blessing and righteousness, I said, well, those come from God. Who's he aiming them at? This recipient in the psalm who is is wanting to ascend to him and stand before his throne. And, well, we know due to Jesus Christ we can But what do you call that? I couldn't think of a better word than grace. Because we received from Him. We didn't get a reward from Him. We didn't earn it from Him. We didn't buy it from Him. We received it from Him. Right? How much did you pay for your grace? If somebody charged you a dollar, they ripped you off. Just so you know that. Because grace is free. Grace is free. It's received from the Lord. It's not, it's not bought from Him. It's received from Him. And so I'm looking at this, this picture, and I say, what, is the, what do we need to know about God's grace? His plan from eternity past to eternity future, and all the details and the designs, and, and you think this is some sort of spiritual trigonometry all of a sudden, and really it's quite simple. He has taken that grace, and He's aimed it at you. He's aimed it at me. That's amazing. I told you my definition is according to a picture of being swept up in a parade. If you think of that timeline now that you've drawn out as a parade route. This is what God has designed all the way through. This is what's going to happen as it marches on through to the final destination. This is what God has done. And here I am standing along the way. 
and he takes me into his grace. Here's a verse I love. You can see it. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 2.14. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now, wait a minute. That's one. Let me turn the page. Two. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. What is that? The triumph was a victory parade for a conquering general. He has gone out. He has done his work. He has won the battle. He is entering back into a joyous city. As he comes back, the words of his deeds have gone before him. News has already spread that the battle's been won. So they prepared this parade for the general to come in on. And the streets are lined with all the people to cheer him. And in the middle of the streets they have strewn flower petals. So it's got this aroma rising as you walk through it. The roses, and I always assume roses, but you've got the beautiful smell permeating the city as he rides in to meet his emperor. The one who sent him on that mission. And now he's to report that he's accomplished it all according to plan. That's the triumph. Now look at the verse again. My favorite part of this. He leads us in triumph. You see that little phrase? He leads us in triumph. As if, I picture it this way, we were spectators. We were watching our Lord ride by. And somehow he pulled us out of the crowd. And he pulls us into his chariot with him. And he says, ride with me to see my father. We're swept up in his victory. We're part of that. Matter of fact, it's even greater than that. Because we are the evidence that he fulfilled his plan. You say, how's that? Well, it says this in scripture. It says in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus So that, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, every single time, should anyone say, what does grace look like? What can grace do for eternity? He's going to point at you and point at me and say, this is what grace can do. We're caught up in something huge. We've been included in God's big plan. And He's put us in the triumph. In the parade. Now certainly we weren't expecting that, were we? Well, I know we would have liked to have been saved. I know we would like to have dealt with sin. But can you imagine this much to grace? It's more than just cleaning you up. It's giving you a seat in heavenly places. You sit next to our our Savior forever. Wow! I'm overwhelmed, I'll tell you that. I'm overwhelmed just thinking all this through. We are trophies of that grace. We shall forever be trophies of that grace. That is a great grace. And our King is the King of glory who has done this. 
He has done this. And I took that long route today to tell you, when I read these words, that he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Say, wow, what a blessing you gave us, Lord. And he shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Those words need thorough study, and my time is set, it's over. I don't know what else to say about that. You've got to study those words. When he means blessing and he means righteousness, we're not talking about merely to get by, you know? His provision matches his grace. Matches his character. I'm overwhelmed with this verse. That we could receive such a thing. I told you before, I've got to skip three pages of notes. That's terrible. Four pages. We have come here as responders to a great God who has initiated all this and gave it to us. We have come here to worship Him. And we are not ignorant of pe- ignorant people for what He has done. How shall we live this week? How shall we live this week? Ignorant like the rest of our world of what God has done in our lives? Defiant? Because we prefer some sin or some attitude or something that we know is not pleasing to Him. And we're going to stick to it. Where are we going to live like those who have been blessed with grace? And we know who our King is. He is the King of glory. Heavenly Father, we've just scratched the surface. There's so much more to be said. And I'm so glad for eternity. For there we can sit at your feet and perhaps, Lord, I don't know, but every single moment we can learn something new of your grace for all of eternity. For the topic is enormous because it's based on you. But Lord, here we we sit in this place and we, we read these words and we think deep thoughts, but what it comes down to is this great God loves us. And we're overwhelmed. Thank you for what you have done. And the way you demonstrated that love toward us, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh Lord, thank you for what you have done. May we be children of grace this week. In the way that we live. Knowing that we have received from you blessing and righteousness. Help us to keep that in mind as we go about our week. Maybe somebody will see it, understand it, maybe for the first time. Maybe we will be that conduit that you use to draw somebody's attention to how great you are. Certainly, may it be quick to our lips that you are great. For such you are. You are our King of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.